Hello and welcome to State of Crime. One state, two murders, lots of crime. So, like Monday's episode, I will have cut and pasted in Elena's intro because I refuse to do it because it feels very unnatural to me <laughs> and she's still out of town. So we're back with Maria and Mi Padre. Hello. Hello. So today's episode I went through and I let my dad pick the state we were doing. So it was supposed to be Utah this week and then with Elena going out of town we kind of just just decided on a different state, which is funny because Colorado was actually going to be the state, one of the states that Maria was going to choose because she was kind of up in the air between two different states. Mm -hmm. And so it worked out well. Elena's not too happy about it, though, because she has a case planned for this state. We, I found a case that linked in with beer, which I figured my dad would like because he likes his beer. And so today we are talking about the murder of Adolf Coors III. And so on February 9th of 1960, there was a car found blocking the middle of a bridge over Turkey Creek near Morrison, Colorado. And a milkman was making his rounds and he had to cross the bridge, but couldn't because there's this car just kind of sitting in the middle of the bridge. And so he honked a couple of times and nothing happened. So he gets out and he sees that there's no one in the car. But the car's running and the radio's playing, but there's no one around. So he honks a couple of more times to see if anybody, like, comes up from, like, under the bridge or something okay. is, like, that around. That was be my question. Were there any doors open? Do you know? Or it, it didn't say, but I'm assuming not. Right, if he approached it and saw. Yeah. Hmm. And so nobody came around, so he just decided he was going to move the car himself. I mean, it's running. Yeah, and it's also 1960, so I feel like it wasn't that big of a deal. Right. And so when he moved the car, he said that he saw a reddish-brown stain on the bridge, and then there was a hat, like, near the riverbank that he saw. So he called the cops, and they determined that the car belonged to Adolf Kors III. He was the grandson of the founder of the Kors Brewing Company, who is Adolf Kors, Kors. the first. The first, right? Yeah. I mean, so he just, just Adolf Kors. Stop it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was said that. Adolf left his house, which was about three miles from the bridge, and he was headed to work, but never made it there. And nobody had seen him since he left. They had done a search party, and they spread uh, out the, over the area looking for him. They didn't find any other trace of him at that time. Other than the stain in the car they had. Yes. So about 24 hours later, the FBI's Denver division entered the case to help because part of the law is it has to be 24 hours before the FBI is allowed to intervene. Mm -hmm. And so they help the authorities search for him. And that day that the FBI also joined the search, Adolf's wife gets a typed written ransom note demanding money. For the return of her husband. Which, mind you, he is the heir 
of the fortune right. that is this Coors Brews Brewing Company. The brown spot on the bridge, you said? Mm-hmm. Did it turn out to be blood? I assume so, yes, but they didn't really specify into it, but... I mean... Whether or not it's his, they had a lot of other information. Later on, they got a lot more evidence that I feel like that reddish-brown stain on the bridge really didn't mm-hmm. mean much after that, but it was just... That was what caught their eye enough for him to call the police. Right. And so they took this ransom note, and it had a distinct... It had a watermark on it because it was on an unusual type of paper that would have been used in that time. And the state and local police continued to search the scene of the crime and they did a bunch of interviews and a lot of investigating and they ended up getting a lead on a canary yellow mercury that had been seen in the area. And they had seen this car on the the People who had come forward and stuff, they had seen this car on several occasions. They tracked down the driver, or they tried to track down the driver. They didn't find the car, but they did find, like, insurance, or maybe not insurance. They had figured out who owned the car. Mm -hmm. The owner of the car was a Walter Osborne. Or at least that's the name he was going by. And they found that Walter had disappeared around the time of Adolf's abduction. Before doing so, he had purchased a gun, handcuffs, and a typewriter. And I believe leg irons, wasn't there? And those were all ordered through the mail catalog. Mm -hmm. Of course, they didn't have Amazon back then. Yeah. So, So, the FBI also learned that Walter had gotten an insurance policy through his job, And the policy designated a man named Joseph Corbett as his beneficiary. When the FBI tracks down Joseph Corbett, they find that he has a son, Joseph Corbett Jr., who we later find out through the fingerprints on Joseph Corbett Jr.'s driver's license and this Walter Osborne's driver's license, that it is the same person. It was shown that... Joseph Corbett Jr. had previously been convicted of second-degree murder, but escaped from the minimum security facility that he was in in Chino, California. Do they specify if that's like San Bernardino prison that he was in in Chino, or...? I didn't see... Did it, Did you find a, the actual name of the prison that I he did was not. in? I didn't. I didn't see it either. It just said that he <clears> was in Chino. I'm just curious, Chino. is that the well, area? It, it was a minimum, minimum security facility. He started out in a, in a high security, and then he was, after five years, mm-hmm. I, I assume after good behavior, mm-hmm. he was transferred right. to minimum security. And then he escaped. So he was convicted in 1950 and escaped in 1955, and Adolf was abducted in 1960. Okay, okay. So they also find the Canary Yellow Mercury in New Jersey. What is it? It was set ablaze and burned. In New Jersey. In New Jersey. Yes. That seems a bit far. So the whole thing I'm confused about, and I haven't found anything, is why did he kill Adolf? Instead of keeping him for the ransom. Was it, yeah, was it an accident? Because he, he sent 
the ransom note for five hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. Which in nineteen sixty was. But then disappeared. Right. So I think it was a my, my opinion, my theory, it was botched. He wanted to kidnap him. Maybe oh Adolf put up a fight. Adolf got killed. Or maybe he did the kidnapping was successful. He presented the ransom note and there was some sort of struggle. Mm-hmm. He was killed. Yeah. And I didn't find anything about a, a motive on it either, but with well, him... the motive was 500000 Yeah, but of him actually killing him, it didn't... There's not really much said. Right. And we'll talk about more about Joseph Corbett Jr. later, because he does give an interview. I believe he only did one interview after everything happened, and that was it. But we'll get into that a little mm-hmm. later, because it doesn't go where you think it will. So, after they found his the mercury in New Jersey, his trail went cold for a while. But on September 11th of 1960, hikers had come across a pair of pants in the wood that were also accompanied with a shirt and some other clothing, a jacket, I believe, was also a part of it. And this was about 12 miles southwest of Denver. And on the pants was a key ring with the initials AC and the Roman numeral three. So along with the pants, there were other clothing and the skeletal remains. How far was this from where he was kidnapped? I believe it was, was it 12? I think it was 12 miles from where he was kidnapped, which was just south of Denver, I believe. The coroner did an autopsy, and in the autopsy report... It did determine that the remains belonged to Adolf Kors III, and the clothing found with the remains also matched with the injuries on the remains. So in the shirt or the jacket, there were two bullet holes, which matched injuries to the shoulder of the remains that they had found. What I read, at least one of those bullet holes was in the back. Yes, I think, it, I'm pretty sure it was like the back of the shoulder. Maybe he was running away. Mm-hmm. Like there was a struggle, he had gotten away and started running, and so Joseph Corbett Jr. just, he had no other choice but to shoot him. Well, he had lots of choices. Well, yeah. But In his mind, he did That's what he chose. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, because he was the heir of such a large, well, I don't know if it was... I'm assuming the brewery was still large in the 60s, correct? I, I would I would assume, yeah. It, it was started, I believe, in the 19, around 1912 or something like that. Okay, so you... I'm would, sure in 1960 it was... Worth it, a while. It was booming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... Well, you have to think of the times, you know, mm-hmm. big house parties, barbecues, things like that. A lot of hospitality block parties going on. Yeah, so since, it, since he was... Someone who was the heir of a, a fairly large fortune, it was in the media a lot, and it did make inner. It did make national news, and even went a little further than the U.S. Which would be understandable, as Coors Light, the, the big import export country. So, one of the publications, which was very large back in the sixties, and still. It went on for a while, but now that we've got internet and stuff like that, it's less used. Mm -hmm. Reader's Digest. 
had put out in one of their publications, they had put out Joseph Corbett Jr.'s photo, and they had put out this long... History about him? Kind of, mm -hmm. and it just went into what had happened and how they were pretty sure that he was the main suspect for this killing and all of this, and... So real, real quick, I don't mean to cut you off. Was that publication in Reader's Digest based upon opinion, or was this something that was like a news-based article? I'm not sure. Okay. But I'm pretty. It probably like most media, it's a little bit of both. Right. Right. You know, you've yeah, got some facts mixed in with some bias. You want to keep the readers. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, because Reader's Digest was such a big thing. There had been a tip given to the Royal Canadian Mountain Police from readers. And it so it was to the Royal Canadian Mount, Mounted Police and their FBI allies. They worked together. Okay. And some of the readers from Reader's Digest had told them that there was a man who very much resembled Joseph Corbett Jr., that had lived in an apartment, but the man had recently moved. So the next day, the manager of this boarding house in Winnipeg called local police to report that a man who looks like Joseph Corbett Jr. had recently stayed in one of their rooms at this boarding house. And she also said that he had been driving a fire engine red Pontiac. I'm confused on why you have to pick such, like, noticeable vehicles. Like, you've got Canary Yellow, Fire Engine Red. Like, just why don't you pick a little more conspicuous vehicle? Well, I'm thinking about the times. I mean, very base colors, I guess, in the 60s where you find your normal, like, black, white, dark blue, or probably yellow Maybe and red. Maybe trying to hide in plain sight. And, right, yeah. you know, standing out where, at the same time, he's basically hidden but you're right, back then there was only a few colors, not like today where there's three dozen different colors. I'm not even sure there was white cars back then. Oh, uh, yeah. You had blue, Vegan, black. Like a pea green. I'm, I'm surprised you had yellow. I know at the end of the 60s, pink and green, I mean, at least with, mm -hmm. with, with Dodge was, was big. But that was still like customizable colors where somebody had obviously sent their vehicle in for like a paint job or something, right? And when was he caught? He was caught in 1960. 60. Yes. So on October 29th, 1960, Vancouver police officers reported seeing a similar vehicle to the fire engine red Pontiac outside a small town motor inn. And they got assistance from the FBI's Toronto's office. And they went to the hotel, they knocked on the door, and he answered, and he just said, I give up, I'm the man you want. And this all happened in the exact same year that uh, Adolf Coors III was murdered murder. and found. Yes. So he was taken back to Colorado, and he was being put on trial for the murder of Adolf Coors III. <laughs> you gotta hand it back then to the police department. They, uh... I mean... That's and the FBI, yeah, back then, all in the same year. What was the date that he was arrested? He was arrested on October 29th, and Adolf, his car was found... February 9th. February 9th. So, that's pretty good. That's, what, eight, eight months? Yeah. It's 
pretty quick for the times. If you think yeah. about it, the resources that they really didn't have back then to find something so fast and to apprehend their suspects so quickly. Yeah. So, and, was he tied to the murder? Well, he thinks he, he says he wasn't. To the day he died, he professed his innocence. So let's hear what evidence has to say. Or on, on his canary yellow mercury that was burnt in New Jersey, they actually recovered some dirt. Okay. They took this dirt and impressively, the forensics the forensic investigators are testing back then, was able to link it to the exact, as the exact same dirt in the area that he went missing. Mm -hmm. That's pretty impressive for 1960. I believe they me. said they did uh, like 154 dirt samples or something like that to match it to the dirt that they had found on the canary, the yellow canary mercury. Uh, you know, circumstantial evidence, but it seemed uh, it was powerful enough for them to link it. And I don't know if they were able to match the guns with, because I'm not sure if they found any bullets or just injuries. Yeah, I don't even think they didn't find a gun, did they? Mm -mm, but they do know that he had ordered a gun. Was it the same caliber? See, I don't know because it was never brought up. Right, they just have the injuries to the body. They wouldn't bring that, that up because that wouldn't have been any evidence because they didn't have any conclusive evidence to link it other than maybe a caliber. Mm -hmm. hmm. So, it also, yeah, they, now we did say earlier that he had been convicted of second degree murder in 1950. Prior to this. And he had broken out of jail in 1955, or prison in 1955. Now, he was sentenced to life in prison in 1950 because he had shot an Air Force sergeant. They had gotten into an argument, and he talks about this in his interview, and he very much admits to, like, we had gotten into an argument, and I shot him. I shot him and killed him. And so he was facing life in prison, and he did plead guilty to it, and then in 1955 he breaks out of prison because he claims that, I, I just didn't want to be in jail, like, it wasn't the life for me, like, it's the life for anybody, but... You gotta do what you gotta do if you decide you're gonna kill somebody. I mean, <laughs> kind of a split second decision right there. Now, what the FBI prosecutors, or the FBI and the prosecutors, really wanted to make sure they had kind of a foolproof, open and shut case to get this guy into prison. Mm -hmm. So they they sent. 23 FBI agents, five lab examiners, and a fingerprint expert to help with the trial. Which I feel like 23 FBI agents is a lot to a lot of people for a... But at the same time, you have to think about his history. So he was in maximum security, dropped down to minimum, he escaped, committed another murder, was on the run, and just decides, oh, hey... And kills possibly... One of the richest men in, in the country in the at country. the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this company uh, was founded, I believe, around 1912 by Adolf Coors. And one, maybe the only, or one of the only breweries that survived Prohibition. So That's Coors big. That's went through big. Prohibition 
survived. They, they changed their production. They were making uh, malted milk for Mars Candy Bar Company. They were making some cement. They, they, uh, they transformed their, their company, brewery, warehouse, work, into other operations and survived. So when Prohibition ended, guess who was one of the only big breweries still intact? So guess who went back to production and there's no telling how much money they made. I mean, initially until other people were able to, other companies were able to well, get back up to, get right. back up to that years. level. Yeah. Prohibition ended in 1921. So then, I mean, 1921 to 1960, that's 39 years of them. Yeah. I mean, making money. So he was rich. So <laughs> that's probably one reason the FBI is it's a high profile case. yeah mm -hmm. yeah it's a big it's a big name so yeah. you want to you could probably associate that then with oj today speaking of oj i actually meant to ask you earlier do you think he did it or do you think he's innocent well the glove did not fit the glove did not fit they should have acquitted so we may not have a perfect legal system in our country, but it's the best in the world. He was acquitted, so the true answer is he didn't do it. Yeah, the, the legal system said he didn't do it. A jury of his peers said he didn't do it. So, anyways, back to course. All right. Yeah, we'll get back to this. We'll talk about OJ later. <laughs> so, on a side note, there it seemed to work getting all of these people together for this trial mm -hmm. because on March 19th, 1961, Joseph Corbett Jr. was convicted and sentenced to life in prison for first degree murder. But that's not where things end. So less than 20 years later, on December 12th, 1980, Joseph Corbett Jr. was released on parole. For good behavior. So pretty much the same thing that got him knocked down from maximum security. That got him to then... Escape. From prison. Yes. So, so after 20 years, he was released for good behavior after being convicted and sent to, pr to prison for two life sentences. Yes. The first one was a life sentence. Mm -hmm. Second one was a life sentence. And mm -hmm. I, I guess it was good to grow up in the 60s. I mean, he escaped. Just wipe his hands clean. He's done with that one. <laughs> he gone away. Apparently, but like, how? I don't understand how they would have even allowed him to have the option of parole when one, he's already killed someone and escaped from prison for it, and two, when he escaped, he killed someone else. Why not do life in prison without the possibility of parole? And then left the country. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's still in North America, but he went to Canada. He still, he still left the country. Left the country. He fled. Uh, yeah, like you said, like, what a time to be alive in the 60s, I guess. Well, and I feel like, so, he was quite literally a genius. So the fact that he wasn't smart enough, and book genius, he had an IQ level of 100 and, oh, I think it was 148. Mm -hmm. I do know that he was attending or was going to attend a... Ivy League type college, uh, and he was on a path until the whole 
Air Force Sergeant killing didn't yes. happen. So after that, he. So he's well down. educated. Yes, and, and he like he, he said, has smart. Yeah, because when you look into it for IQ testing, genius level is anywhere over one forty five, I believe, and he had an IQ of one forty eight. So he did this interview in 96, and the he claimed his innocence the entire time. And he said that the handcuffs and the leg irons that he had ordered through the mail had gone unused. And the handgun that he ordered was, ne- was used but was never found. But we... Yeah. And then, like you said, the dirt scraped off his wheels. And I was wrong. It was not 150 dirt samples. It was 450 dirt samples. And he says that it was pure make-believe and that nobody testified at the trial that he was around the property when it happened. His car was found blocking a bridge three miles from home. That was not his car. That was Adolf's car. The man who got... Oh, okay. But that's like, you can't... Oh, my God. This guy. This guy. Duh, nobody saw it. And he... When he was found, he told him, I'm your man. I'm not armed. I give up. But to play devil's advocate a little bit and play the other side of the the fence, is that him telling them... Like, I'm your man, I escaped from prison five years ago. You found me. me. Or is this him? But he just happened to leave uh, the Golden, Colorado area in a yellow car that was seen in the area. and Then sets it on fire. And burned in Jersey Mm -hmm. and it's linked to him with the dirt was scraped off the mercury, the yellow mercury's wheels. Mm -hmm. See, there it is. So back to him in 1980, being released from prison. The kicker to that, really, is a kick in the gut to the family because he moved back to that area. He lived, I believe, within 10 miles of where the kidnapping occurred. Mm-hmm. So the family, whether or not they still lived in the same house or mm-hmm. the same area, it's near the brewery. So That's a little, I mean, in my opinion... That's something that he's linked to, and he knows it. So that's kind of like a slap to the face to people. Mm -hmm. You know, stating like, hey, I was tried, convicted, or whatever. I'm released now. I'm going to move back, and I'm going to be here. This is where I'm going to stay so that I can be close. I mean... And I'm sure it's a small town, so it's like you're going to see my face all the time. All the time. Except it did say that he, when he was released, he was very much a homebody, and his neighbors around the apartment had said that they didn't. He didn't talk to people much. He was very much just kind of like a, a neighborly like, "Hey, how are you?" That was it, kind of exchange. Mm-hmm. And then he ends up getting diagnosed with cancer. And in on August twenty fourth, two thousand nine, he is found dead in his apartment from a self inflicted gunshot wound to the head. He was 80 years old and, like I said, suffering from cancer mm-hmm. and just killed himself. But from the, till the day he died, he claimed that he was innocent and that he did not kidnap or kill Adolf Coors. And he was mm-hmm. 80? 
Yes, he was 80 when he died. An interesting fact, Adolf Coors, the first, if you will, the founder, and for reasons I do not know, actually committed suicide himself at, at the age of 82. Also from a gunshot wound to the head, I believe you said, right? Uh, no, I, no, I did, no, I do not know. Oh, no, he leapt from the sixth floor window of the Cavalier Hotel in Virginia Beach, Virginia, on June 5th, 1929. Did they say why? Mm -mm. Was he sick? He was described as an accommodating man who had many friends, and it doesn't really... That describes me. And I like Coors. Don't go leaping out of windows now. I, yeah. wouldn't, I wouldn't get far. I was just looking at my one-story window. <laughs> <laughs> On November 14th, 1873, Coors and the Denver confectioner Jacob Schuler purchased an abandoned tannery and converted it into the Golden Brewery. 1873, I was wrong there. And by 1874, they were producing beer for sale. In 1880, Coors purchased Schuler's interest in the brewery was renamed to Adolf Coors Golden Brewery. And when Prohibition began in Colorado in 1916, he converted his brewery to make malted milk. And the, com the company also manufactured porcelain and ceramic products made from clay gold mined in Golden, Colorado. And the Coors Porcelain Division has since split off and is now known as Coors Tech. So that's cool. So yeah, they've been around since 1873. Holy hell. So they were they must have been worth a hell of a lot of money. I feel like he probably if he was going to actually get a ransom probably could have gotten more than $500,000, which I I know is a big difference in now $500,000 and then $500,000. But the fact that they let him out. Right. He didn't even serve 20 years of his sentence. On a life sentence. Uh-huh. His second life sentence. His that second. Right. So then my question is, did they even, like, bring from when he escaped from prison? Did they, did he have to continue serving that? Or, like, was it just, like I said, dropped, slapped off his hand, like, you escaped, you got away. Right. You win. Shame on you. <laughs> I mean. It, it didn't really give much about his trial, but. Where did he go to prison for the set for... Killing Adolf. It was... Because you would think, well, maybe things were back then. It, let's just say uh, Colorado took jurisdiction. He went to prison in Colorado. Then once he was released... He should have had to what, go he back, to went back to California mm -hmm. and, and to faced can... their prosecution. Yep, that's what For should have happened. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe it was different back then. He... I don't know. It doesn't say where he was. In. He did end up on the FBI's top ten most wanted list while he was while they were searching for him, before they found him in Vancouver. And that was in March of nineteen sixty. But it doesn't say where he went to prison or where they mm -hmm. sent him. But that's right. If once he got paroled, they should have been able to extradite him back to California. Mm -hmm. 
on more charges because he escaped. He escaped, right. I mean, that should have been where he should have never been allowed to even be eligible for parole. Yeah. It's... I didn't even think about him getting extradited to finish his life sentence from... I also think that it's weird that these people keep getting... Because you hear about it all the time, the people getting out on good behavior. Mm-hmm. Like, they're in prison. Aside from, like, killing other inmates, there's not much good thing, like, bad things they can do. Right. They're just sitting... I mean, I and some of them do have, like, work that they have to do around, but, like, most of the time... I want to know what entails in good behavior. Yeah. What do they have to do or what do they have to prove to be let out on a good behavior despite their crime? Especially for, like, a murderer or a rapist or something mm-hmm. like that. Like, what do they have to prove? Yeah. I don't... I mean, not fighting with other inmates, with guards, maybe doing extra work. Maybe, Going yes. to school, getting a degree. Right. Um, finishing out their course, finishing their work. I mean... But at the same time, I still I don't, think that it, to get put or to get released on good behavior, I don't think, I think there's certain people who should be exempt from that being an option. Kidnapping murderers. Rapists. Yeah. Rapists. Should be exempt. Should not be, yeah, child molesters. I don't think that they should be allowed an opportunity, let alone the option for parole. Yeah. Now, since we have some time and you were not able to come on the last episode that Alina and I did because we really wanted you, I want to know what your feelings are. And we, you can jump in on this, too. I want to know what your feelings are on the death penalty. Oh, oh, okay. So, the death penalty, I mean, this kind of, my whole idea on it started peaking. I was 13 on a project in eighth grade. Where we were given this opportunity that if you were president, what would you do? So I startled a few people when I pulled up a slide and there was an electric chair in my slide and it was the death penalty. Okay. Um, now, I don't think that it should be something that is obviously handed out where you're just giving it to anybody. Um, cases like Patrick Frazier, like we just talked about and with... Your gentleman, I'm so sorry, I have a horrible time with names. Joseph Corbett Jr. Yes, Joseph Corbett Jr. Where that should have been an option. And it should still be an option for Patrick. It should have been an option for him. It should have stayed that way. He never should have been released on parole. I think if you're given the death sentence, that's it. You're done. That is your sentence, death. Whether you die in prison or you're executed. But at the same time, the death sentence should be execution. I agree. I don't think that you should be allowed to sit on death row where my taxpaying dollars are feeding you, housing you, taking care of you. They still get treated if they get sick. They still get treated if somebody beats the shit out of them. I don't think that that should be... Which is very unlikely because with being on death row, they are in a single cell for 23 hours a day. Mm -hmm. By themselves, isolated. But anybody who may be in, like, the general population who's, it, it was maybe dropped. I don't think it should have been dropped, in my opinion. If you're given that sentence, that is your sentence. I agree. Now, coming into the gentleman, I don't know if you heard about this, that happened in Boise, where an African-American male stabbed that little, that little girl on her birthday. It was a three-year-old's birthday, and he stabbed a bunch of kids? A bunch of kids, a couple adults, um... 
and it was never considered a hate crime. It was against some refugees in this apartment complex. His was more of his mentality. He was angry that he was kicked out, told that he wasn't allowed to return to the property. So this was um, more of an act of random than anything. He just kind of saw that there was an opportunity to do something, and he did it. He was given the death penalty. So, in my eyes, why are we keeping him alive right now then? Because obviously what he did, he knew what he did. He knew why he did it. He said why he did it. And now he's, I don't know if you heard about this in the news, but now he's fighting because he wants to change his name to this eternal love or something like that. That's his God-given name. You don't have a God. You can't do that. You don't that. have rights. You don't have rights. Yeah, you were given that you should be dead. And that's what should have happened. My biggest problem, which, again, I talked about it in the last episode, which was so far has not come out yet. So, okay. But it'll be out, I think, Monday we talk about it. Um, my biggest thing with the death penalty is the fact that they do sit in prison for so long and usually then end up dying of natural causes. Now, I kind of understand why they sit in prison for so long because they do have the appeals process that granted we do have we do have some problems with our justice system mm -hmm. and I think that if someone has done something bad enough to get them the death penalty I think that our prosecutors and our defense teams need to make sure that they have all of the evidence they need and that there is no chance of him winning an appeal so they can actually they eliminate the appeal process altogether. Mm -hmm. Because them sitting in prison for 40 years and then dying of a heart attack, like that kind of defeats the purpose of them being on death row and being sir being sentenced to death. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't oppose the death penalty. However, if, for whatever reason, I was given life in prison, I don't think I would want to live my life in prison. I think I would rather die. I also, but, depending on what you did, do you think you deserve the right to choose what you do? Well, as an individual, if I was convicted of something, no, I don't have any choice. It should be chosen for me. Yes. However, if I had the choice, I think I would want just immediate death. So if someone does something bad enough that they get, that they could be sentenced to death, maybe they should be just sentenced to prison with zero chance of parole, zero chance of getting out on, and put into a high security, maybe high labor prison, that'll be punished for the rest of their life. I like the high labor prison idea. We didn't bring that up last time. I didn't think about that. Now, of course, they are put into isolation, and like you said, takes a long time for appeals process, but you put up a good point, taxes. Yeah, someone's paying for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, are they suffering in isolation for X amount of years? Sure. In isolation, and it has proved that it does cause a lot of damage to, mental damage, it, it'll drive someone fucking crazy, mm -hmm. being sitting by themselves, staring at four brick walls, steel walls, whatever they are, I don't know, I've never been in jail, but staring at four walls 23 hours a day is going to drive anyone crazy. And that's okay if they were convicted enough of, of something doing uh, 
heinous enough. Right. Yeah. And that's the other thing, is that I think that there needs to be a fine depiction of violent crimes and non-violent crimes. We obviously see a lot of people who are in prison for drug crimes, non-violent drug crimes at that. I mean, maybe they were selling a little crack on the street. They were a happy crack dealer. They weren't mean. They weren't killing people. I mean, just, you know, make them do what they need to do. Give them their 90 days and then make them go to rehab or something. But I think that somebody sitting in prison for an X amount of years for something like that is ridiculous. I think it depends on the situation. It, because you also have to time, think that that happy little crack dealer is killing people, essentially. Right. He, he is helping kill people. Mm -hmm. I understand that it is people's choices right, to then right. do the drugs, but he is essentially helping He's enabling and giving that, yeah. Whether or not yeah, he's holding a gun or stabbing someone to death, right. he is helping. Mm -hmm. So, no, I, I don't think that drug crimes need to go straight to a death penalty. Right. But So, I get where you're going mm -hmm. with the whole right. thing. Right. Just but. finding the fine lines between everything. I mm -hmm. mean, and again, the tax paying. Like, I don't, they shouldn't be sitting there forever. And like you said, dying out. I mean, on natural causes. Cancer, heart attacks, a stroke. Which, again, kind of makes me sound like a terrible person because I'm like, I would rather you be killed then like die on your own. It's gotta be Yeah, there's two sides of the coins. Appeals process. How many people have been released from prison because they were innocent? I have I actually think I might have that. Can you hand me that back? They've had there have been dozens of, well, probably thousands of people released. So right now there could be thousands of people sitting in prison that are innocent. There's been a lot of people convicted from the, you know, back in the 50s and 60s uh, based on circumstantial evidence and now forensics, DNA testing today, mm -hmm. prove them innocent. Yeah, I don't actually have that. I thought I did. However, with today's technology, if they have something solid enough, DNA evidence, mm -hmm. and that's admission. Don't sit there for 20, 30 years. That is what I was saying the last time we talked about this because of the fact that our technology, while our technology is growing every day, we are currently at a point where we have what we need to have the right evidence against these people where they shouldn't need the appeals process. We have the DNA and we have the, the means to get everything we need. I feel like our biggest problem with the justice system is we are so, the justice system wants a fast conviction, so I feel like they don't do everything they need to do to cover all their bases for later on. Then there's so, the other human factor. What about falsification? What about, they want that quick, quick conviction. Some men may be convinced, hey, this person did it, so now... Let me just slide this evidence in there to prove it. Yeah. It's... Well, because... So, I... And I've talked... I talked about this last week. Is... The... I did pull up some information on the death penalty when we decided we were going to talk about it. And... I looked up the longest time served on death row. 
Like, who sat in jail the longest on death row? Mm -hmm. And his name's Gary Alvord, and he spent almost 40 years on death row before he died of natural causes. How old was he? Before he died of natural causes. So how old was he when he passed it to say? He probably did, but I didn't write it down. Just getting that. Why 40 years? Why didn't they just... Uh, it just appeals, and it just, I don't, I don't understand why it just doesn't happen. There should be a limit to appeals. Yes, a limit, and then also a limit on time that they're sitting there. Yeah. I mean, There's no telling how many millions of dollars years. Be, be drained from mm-hmm. society. Mm-hmm. And it's bonkers. It drives me nuts. Mm-hmm. That is my biggest problem with the death penalty, because I'm not opposed to it. I I was very much for it, and then me and Elena got into a discussion, and I was like, well, because, and I brought up the fact that I would love to be able to find out who actually administers the, because right now, for most states, the only way to kill someone, to execute someone, is by lethal injection. Because right. everything's been deemed cruel and unusual. Inhumane. Yeah. Some other hangings. So. Electrocutions. I was talking about it last time, how I really want to figure out, like, who it is that actually administers the drugs that kills the person. Mm-hmm. That actually executes them. Because I would love to just talk to them and figure out, like, what their thought process is. Because in my mind... I feel like that, I don't remember how I, I don't know, but you have to think about it. It's like, if someone's on death row, like, yay, we're trying to kill you. But at the same time, like, that's kind of contradicting to what we're saying because you killed somebody. And we're going to kill you. you I bet if you do some research that you can't tie, say, a doctor going in there giving a shot because... Even dating back, I'm not sure how far, when someone was executed by gunfire, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know how many guns that were used. Let's just say seven. Well, you there was, there was only one bullet in, the, in one of the guns, and the other six had blanks. blanks. Now, interesting, in Idaho, at the Idaho State Prison... The Idaho State Penitentiary, the old uh, one? Yeah, the old one, the yeah. old penitentiary, there is a... Uh, I did a tour there. And whatever they call the execution room, mm-hmm. uh, execution room it was by hanging. Yep. There was a trap door, put a noose around the guy's neck, and nobody was responsible was responsible for releasing him. They did it by some sort of water drip system, where there was a weight, and the water kind of dripped out of the bucket, and at one point opened the door. So. Whoever injects it, who knows? There's probably just some sort of timer. He's t- he's put down. He's probably on a clock. Okay, he's probably, probably in a at midnight. His execution's going to happen, so they probably have to strap him down at ten till. Everyone walks out. And I'm just theorizing yeah, there because I well I looked in, I got onto the Idaho something. And it gives you, like, you can read step by step how from weeks and months before the execution to days after the execution, what's supposed to happen and who all's supposed to be there and the the processes that they all have to go through to be there, whether it be medical um, personnel and then, like, 
the warden and all of these people and visitors who are going to watch it, his friends, his family, and there's only allowed to be a certain amount of people and judge it or uh, church people, ministers, pastors, anything like that. But, and I read through like 10 pages of it trying to figure out if it ever like says who actually administers it and it never tells you. It's just... It's too complicated. If you ask me, they ought to bring back the days of like the Green Mile, the electric chair. You had a picture of the electric chair, what would you do as president? Well, if I was president, I'd bring back the electric chair, just like they did on the Green Mile. Roll on one. I've never mm -hmm. seen the green light. Roll on to. Yep. And, and you people are sitting it. right there. And, well, if the guy didn't put water in the sponge, well, he barbecued right there. Well, if you, if you murder someone for money, maybe you need to barbecue. Hey, on a lighter note. Oh, dear. I actually did something that get me put in prison. <laughs> Just I could, like have, been, I could have been convicted of video piracy. Jesus Christ. I think I illegally videoed a, a movie or two. It might have even been Footloose. It might have been Footloose. There was even an FBI warning right in the beginning. <laughs> recording this as video piracy. I did it anyway. Oh my gosh, you rebel, you. Oh, I, I have since destroyed the evidence. <laughs> if it was on the internet, it'll never be destroyed. Not to mention probably not any VCRs around us to watch it. <laughs> he pulled the tape out. <laughs> he unwound every little piece in there. Oh my gosh. We're going to have to talk about OJ one time and bring back. Because I feel like you so far out of every one of us has been the only one who believes that he is innocent. He's either innocent and or had one hell of a compass. Maybe it was Cato Kalen. I don't know. They should have had Cato try the glove on. But I saw OJ big old hands trying to go in that little glove bitty on. glove. And the glove did not fit. Richard. Yeah, Richard. Then, the, then there's the whole ice cream theory. Never heard the ice cream theory? Never heard no. that. Well, when theory. the cops got to Nicole's house, there was ice cream unmelted on the banister. When they did test, it took so long for it to melt... And there's no way O.J. could have made it back to his house, from her house, in, a t in less time than it took the ice cream to melt. Because remember, there was some someone saw or Cato heard a banging that when Hedry came, O.J. came home. Yeah. Did he do it? Maybe, but he had to ha have to have accomplice. I don't know. I think and this is going to be pretty graphic, but I think he walked in on somebody going to town balls deep and just decided he was done. <laughs> I mean, if I walked in on my husband cheating on me, I honestly couldn't say that I wouldn't be in like this blacked out sort of a rage thing. I, I feel like I've known you long enough that I can imagine you just ripping her by the hair and dragging her out of the house. Just done. Yeah. It's over. That's now, what to I say that. So she would have had to make a bowl of ice cream and then head upstairs to get ball deep. But she was found outside. <laughs> I think they were making the ice cream and got distracted and outside they went. I don't know. With Ron Goldman. Outside. So Ron Goldman might not have been the boyfriend. If he, mm -hmm. he was clothed, I assume. I'm pretty sure they were both clothed. I've seen the. I've seen. I've looked at. The, I thought that she was in a robe. 
I don't remember specifically. I, I do she know I've looked in at the, a row. I've looked at the crime scene photos, which that is that poor guy was just bringing home some glasses she left at the restaurant. Yeah. He. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. But that's for another story. Yeah, we're gonna have to talk. We're gonna have to I have a whole. I think it was her. It was Chris Jenner. She did it. And she was still a Kardashian. <laughs> it was her. Chris Jenner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, she's Nicole's best friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was she? She was. So I. Chris Jenner and her husband was his was OJ's best friend and his attorney, his yeah. defense attorney. Was Chris Jenner Bruce Jenner's wife? Yeah. Not this is it, before. This is before that. This so is, Chris Jenner used to be Chris Kardashian because she was married to, to what is his Richard? Name? Is that his name, Richard or Robert? Robert. Oh, this is Kardashian. Yeah, we'll talk about this later. Yeah, but we'll, so, but. so make sure you like us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and join our discussion discussion page and. We can talk about some of this stuff. Maybe not all of it. It's probably not appropriate, but <laughs> we'll see what happens. And if you have any suggestions, email us at statedcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Also, I, for, I don't say this ever on any of them, but make sure if you're listening on an Apple product, go to your podcast and rate and review us. That'd be cool. But until next week, I don't know what state we're doing. I think it's Utah, but we'll figure it out later. And girls, make sure you check your oil. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs>